0: So message to Mac developers, if your icon is terrible, G is coming for you.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: This episode is sponsored by Newbie Remote Comp. Newbie Remote Comp is a two-day completely virtual conference hosted by none other than Charles Maxwood. If travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. It's virtual. This conference is focused on people who are new to programming, who want to learn what the pros know, or just get a leg up in getting a job and getting into the programming community. We'll have speakers from all over the programming community to help you stay current in a Slack room where you can connect with speakers and other attendees in real time. We'll also have a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 206 of the iFreak Show. Today on our panel, we have Guy Rambo. Hello from Brazil. Erica Sedun.
2: Hello from Denver.
0: Andrew Madsen. Hello from snowy Salt Lake City. And I'm James Zuber from 80 Degrees in Minneapolis. So we're winning. The snow is all gone, but we did have it this morning. Fantastic. Yeah, we're recording in May, so most of us have hopefully gotten rid of that. But if you live in a mountain, you may not be so lucky. So we don't have a guest today, but... Guy's made a name for himself for converting iOS apps to Mac, and we're going to do a little bit more talking about Mac development in general. It's been a while since we really dug into any Mac concepts. So, uh, Guy, do you want to give a give us an overview of how you got started converting iOS apps to Mac?
1: Well, it was a long time ago. I... Started using the Mac and I really loved it. And since I didn't have an iOS device, when Apple released the iPhone, I got really excited with the iPhone. And when they introduced the App Store, I still didn't didn't have an iPhone. And so I chose to develop for the Mac instead and kind of got used to it and really loved it, still love it. But now I, I develop for iOS uh, as well.
0: Okay, what are some examples of apps that you've converted?
1: Well, I think the most famous one is the WWDC app, which is coming up soon. And I'm actually in the process of rewriting it right now because it, the code is really old and clunky. And I wrote it on the Swift one days. So there were some some pointy bits in in the code. But yeah, yeah, I think that's the most famous one. And it's basically Apple's WWDC app for iOS, which I kind of reverse engineered and brought to the Mac.
0: Okay, so you didn't have source code. You just looked at the functionality and made it happen.
1: Yeah, lots of uh, using an HTTP proxy to look at the API they're using, which is actually really simple. It's just a bunch of JSON files. They put on a, an AWS storage somewhere and yeah, just downloads them, parses them and shows the data.
2: And it's a wonderful app. Yeah when you're in the middle of WWDC, that you can just go there and grab videos and the PDFs of the slides. You've done a real service to the developer community. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource.
1: Yeah, thank you. And now that they live stream pretty much every session, it's become a real necessity. Doing that that kind of stuff in the browser is not very comfortable. and. The app can remind you when there's a session live, you can favorite sessions. You can even ask Siri to remind you about sessions now, that Mac OS has Siri integration. So it's really cool.
2: Since this topic is about iOS and Mac, I'd really love to hear your thoughts about the design philosophy, because some people use iOS apps as the main app with the Mac app being a supporting thing or a client to it. Some people try to duplicate the functionality entirely. Some people think of the iOS as the remote app to take parts of the functionality on the road. How do you do your design?
1: I think it really depends on on the app itself. Uh, There are some apps where it makes sense to have the iOS app as an accessory to the Mac app. And in some apps, it's the contrary. And other apps, you must have all functionality with both apps. So let's take an example, Keynote. Keynote, they started with the Mac app, of course, and then they brought the remote app for iOS, where you could just switch slides. And now they have both apps on both platforms. So I think it it really depends, but usually if it's a professional app, you probably use the Mac as the main app and have an iOS counterpart that's just like a basic remote of some sorts, but uh, it really depends. But I generally prefer apps that have uh, as much functionality as possible, on both platforms. I really don't like when there's like a fully featured iOS app and a not very well done macOS app, just to say that they haven't a macOS app. Sometimes the macOS app is just a little web app wrapped in a binary, so it's not a really good experience. So that's my general opinion. So I have to agree with you
0: there. Wrapping a web app and passing it off as a native app is a, a pretty rough experience. Like apps are, are doing like limited Mac apps. That's because most of the times I see you have a full functioning app on the Mac and you'll have a more limited mobile app, which makes sense in a lot of cases because you're doing less things for a lot of apps on your phone. You do something really quick. You put it back in your pocket and, and go on. Like what what apps are less featured on the on the Mac?
1: Well, actually, what's most common these days is that you don't have a Mac app at all. The, you have an iOS app, and if you want to do something on your Mac, you have to use your browser. That's actually the most common situation as I see it right now. And I think a lot of it is due to it being harder to develop apps for the Mac. It, it is an older platform. The frameworks are not as modern. Even though the underpinnings are the same, the core of the system is the same, foundation is the same, but if you want to take an iOS app and make a macOS version of it, it's not very simple. And I, I think it, it costs a lot of money and, and time to, to do so.
2: I think one of the big questions for developers who are thinking about moving from the iOS platform to the Mac is whether or not to engage in the Mac App Store or to go outside of Apple and create their own storefronts. Do you have some thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I actually have one app that I sell both on the App Store and outside the App Store. It's called browser freedom, and you basically create some rules and it opens. Uh, when you click a link, it will use your rules to decide in which browser the link should be opened in. And it has other features. But I decided to have both because I wanted to see which way would sell more at first actually selling outside, you'll get more money because you don't have to pay Apple 30%, and that's a big cut. And actually, I'm selling a lot more on the App Store, on the Mac App Store, than on my own website, which uses FastSpring for the payment processing stuff. But there's another consideration, which is Does your app work with macOS sandboxing? Because the Mac didn't uh, exist before with sandboxing, it was added later on. Some things don't work very well when your app is sandboxed on the Mac. And there are some features you might want to implement that simply aren't possible because of sandboxing. uh, You could. Yeah.
0: Spend a little time explaining sandboxing and how that translates to the Mac.
1: Yeah, so just like on iOS, you have this sandboxing model on macOS, which is optional. Your app is not forced to use it, but you are forced to use it if you want to release your app on the Mac App Store. It's one of the rules. And there are actually some apps on the Mac App Store that aren't sandboxed. But those are old apps that existed before this rule was in place. And Apple has allowed them to continue to update. But uh, today, if you want to release an app on the Mac App Store, you have to sandbox it. Which means you can't like write to any location on the disk. You have to ask permission for the user. So one very common issue with sandboxing on the Mac is apps that have a built-in file browser, like uh, TextMate, for instance. You, You can't have a file browser on a sandbox Mac app because you can't enumerate the directories on the disk. So every time the user wants to save a document, you have to present the standard save panel and the system will like poke a hole through the sandbox and allow that right to happen. But other than that, you, you can't really, you can't really write and, or read from anywhere on the disk. And on the Mac, uh, uh, I don't know why this is, but you actually have to explicitly say that that your your app is going to use networking for instance. So if you want to do an HTTP request, you have to check the little checkbox saying that your app is an HTTP client. So in some ways it's more restrictive than on iOS.
2: Would you say it's fair that a lot of Mac developers are deliberately moving away from the store to independent sales?
1: I think it is fair. I think if the Mac App Store is not providing a good environment and currently it as always, it depends. But I think for most developers, they'd say the Mac App Store is lacking a lot of features. We still don't have a uh, test flight, for instance. Uh, of course, it's it's not as necessary on the Mac, but it would could be you useful.
2: explain what test flight is?
1: Yeah, so test flight is the beta testing system that Apple provides. It It was a separate company that Apple acquired and they basically introduced it to the iOS app store. So I can go there and release an iOS app, not on the actual store, but on the test flight app. And I send an invite to users and they can test the app before it goes live on the app store. And for the Mac app store, this is still not available. And the Mac App Store app itself on the Mac is really n- not very good. It has some weird bugs and doesn't really work very well. So it's it's not a very good experience for users users either. But I think it it lacks more for developers than for users. I think for the users, it's still better than purchasing apps separately. And obviously, it's more convenient and more secure. But for developers, it's not very good. And we don't have upgrade pricing as well. So that's also an issue.
2: You brought up a whole bunch of really interesting things there that I think deserve a little bit extra exploration. How about talking a little more about the upgrade pricing, what it is and why it's important not just to developers, but to people who purchase applications.
1: Upgrade pricing has been the model of basically keeping an app business alive since, I don't know, since software exists, I guess. So in the old days, you bought a little CD for your app or Floppy drive, even way back then, but uh, you bought a license for a software, and a year later, two years later, the developer would release a brand new version with lots of new features and lots of improvements. And if you wanted to use that new version, you had to pay some price. Usually, it was a lot less than a a new license. So let's say the license is 99 bucks. The upgrade price would be something like 50. So you could keep using the old version, but if you wanted the new features, you paid like half the price and you got your upgrade.
2: And so that, re- that rewards existing customers.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the the main benefit for users of, Upgrade pricing. There are actually two, but I, I think the main one is you guarantee a business, so the app will continue to be developed for I don't know how long, but as long as people are willing to pay for the the upgrade, the app will be sustainable. And another issue that happened because of the lack of upgrade pricing is that people uh, developers started. Uh, inventing some clever ways of doing upgrade pricing without doing upgrade pricing so they would like release a version two of the app like as a brand new version on the app store and if you have the old version you could keep using it normally but You had, if you wanted a new version, you had to actually pay for the whole license. Like you, they can't uh, give you a discount because the App Store doesn't offer that option. So it's 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 really messy.
2: Now I know that Apple has been pushing very hard on subscriptions. So what's the theory there versus upgrade pricing?
1: I think subscriptions have a a different psychological effect on people like you, you having to pay for something every month or every, every year is uh, an entire different thought process that goes through your mind. And like, I'm just going to purchase a license and when i decide to renew it i can go and and pay uh, you, it's a commitment to to pay that that fee every month or every year that i i think many people are not willing to to go through
2: i know that phil schiller gave a recent interview where he said that upgrade pricing was basically a leftover from the days where people were selling shrink wrap software. Yeah, and he uh, said that upgrade pricing wasn't a part of the future where Apple was going.
3: The, the problem I have with that is Apple is not in the business of selling other people's software. They don't really care. I mean, they would just as soon have everybody give away software, right? Because they, they want their hardware to be attractive and, I don't think Apple's really dealing with the reality of an independent software vendor.
1: Yeah, of course uh, that's a very good point. Apple is not in the business of selling software. They are they are a hardware company. I believe they they are actually a hardware company. And even when they started to give away some of their software like I think GarageBand, the, the iLife suite, I think they're basically free. If you get a new device, you get them for free. Yes. Is that still around? Yeah. So a lot of developers were like, thought this is not fair. Like, Apple is this huge company with lots of resources. So they can give away really good quality software. So, how am I going to sell software if Apple is going, is do, Giving it away for free, so uh, yeah, I think that's a very good point, and I, I'm not entirely against uh, Phil Schiller's position. I, I think uh, it makes sense for them to to say that, but I think in reality, just not having that option is worse for everybody.
2: Is this a case of toaster fridge redux? And when I say toaster fridge redux, I mean the notion that Apple becomes very firmly entrenched in an idea such as the notion that you can't have something which is both a tablet and a general purpose PC, which is what you get with, for example, the Microsoft Surface. And Apple said, we're not going there. I remember Steve Jobs saying, if you're using a Stylus, you know, you've lost, and yet we've seen a big turnaround over the last couple of years with much more content creation on the iPad, with the, the pencil appearing and so forth. Is it simply that it's inconvenient to do upgrades and there's they're just pushing back because of their costs? Or do you think this is really a philosophy? that they're standing behind?
1: I think it's a bit of both. But if, if you think about uh, Apple's philosophy, they, they always uh, put the users first. And I, I really believe they, they believe in, in that and they actually work for that. And uh, they would like the users to pay once for software and have it forever. But I also think there is like some sort of technical challenge that involves upgrade pricing that they're not willing to go through to make that available. So maybe it's a bit of both.
2: He did say that if you look at the app store, it would take a significant amount of engineering to introduce upgrade pricing. So he is on the record saying that.
1: Yeah, and and I actually believe it because we all know how old the App Store software is and it's based on the iTunes Store software. It's all web objects. I don't know if they changed that, but it must be really challenging to implement anything on that system.
2: So you've talked about security and sandboxing, you've talked about that there's not a lot of support of, you know, beta testing, that there's no upgrade pricing. What about the biggest problem, in my opinion, which is discoverability?
1: Yeah, discoverability is, uh, it. it's an issue on iOS as well. Uh, so that's why uh, uh, people ask me, why would I, I spend time and money making an app for for the Mac when there are so many more people using iOS and iOS is is the future and mobile is the future? The thing is, uh, I always like to say you you can actually make a lot of money selling macOS apps if your app is really good. It has to be. A, very polished very stable very well done app and you have to give a niche market something they really need so the, those are the the conditions for you to to make uh, good money selling macOS software you are not going to make a lot of money sa- selling macOS software making a product for a massive market that has millions of users, tens of millions of users, you're not going to have your app become famous like on iOS. You can get lucky and get your your app famous and make millions. It's not how it works on the Mac. I think the Mac has a lot to offer for very niche markets where you can Develop a tool for people that need to make some very specific thing.
0: Sounds like my ultimate to-do list is probably not what I should be working on.
1: Yeah, probably
0: not. (laughs) Oh, man.
2: The problem, of course, is that the world still needs the ultimate to-do list. And it's a pity that so many wonderful getting things done apps have stalled have faded away because that is an area that no one owns.
0: That's true. No one owns it, but everyone tries to get into it and thinks they can do it, do a good job. And the ones with the real expensive problems, they, I mean, they'll build a business around it. If you're a Jira or a Trello or something like that, those are major companies which do grandiose to-do lists. But for the general person, I, I have a to-do list. I like it for a while and I, I stop, stop using it.
2: And there's also that big problem of who owns your data. Who's going to look at your data? Can you trust them with your data? Because to-do items are some of the most personal and important things that anybody works with any day.
1: Yeah, I actually just use Apple Reminders. (laughs) I know it's weird, but it works for me. No,
0: I I do too. If I need something that has to be reminded, I'll, I'll ask Siri and she'll remind me. That. Oh
1: yeah,
2: and there are some really good contenders in the area. Omni, for example, but it's still a very limited market.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. But that's the thing you have to to find your market, basically. Like maybe there's not enough of a market, and it, maybe it's not niche enough for you for you to make a. To do list app for, for macOS, even if it's a really good to do list, because uh, there are too many apps on the same category and it's, everyone has their favorite, but you have to find a really niche thing, like the, the browser freedom example I gave earlier. There are like uh, two or three apps that can do that and so when i went into this project i looked uh, for similar apps and i i found only one on the mac app store and the icon was terrible (laughs) like i would never buy an app just because of that icon (laughs) it was a terrible icon (laughs) so i thought there was a, a good market there and I found it. It's not like uh, I'm not a millionaire yet, but uh, it sells enough to to be worth developing it.
0: So, message to Mac developers, if your icon is terrible, Guy is coming for you.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Well, it, I, I think it, it's actually a good point that You know, polish
3: and and design details really matter on on Apple platforms. That's been true for a long, long time, and it's still certainly true. And when you think about the Mac App Store, the very first thing somebody sees when they see your app is the icon. Because if you do a search, that's what you see. If you look at the main page of the App Store, if you're lucky enough to be featured there, all you really see is the icon and the name. So that better make a good first impression on people.
2: Now, that said, I have a number of friends who have, the design skills of rocks and do really well in the Mac App Store and they do well mostly because they have functionality that's unique it's niche and it's word of mouth I mean this is hideous UI design but at the same time It's providing that functionality, and the money comes in, and it's steady, reliable money for these people.
1: Well,
3: so I think the important thing you just said is that it's word of mouth. People are probably not finding it as much on the App Store, which I think is important for any developer. Unless you're lucky enough to get featured, Apple's not really going out of their way to drive people to your to your specific app so it's kind of No,
2: you need to have other channels
1: yeah. I Even will... if you are featured I mean uh, I have an iOS app and it, it got featured a couple of, of times already and it does drive lots of downloads and of course lots of sales but it's n- not a game changer, it's not going to change your life or make your app a success overnight just because it got featured
2: on iOS, when I am typing into Spotlight, it makes some app suggestions from the App Store as I type. You find none of that on the Mac ecosystem.
1: Yeah, I think the, the iOS ecosystem is a lot more focused on, on content. Like you, Apple really loves to make a, a lot of content available easily, so like you said, you type on spotlight and it suggests apps even there are those iBeacon things on like airports and stuff that you when you go to the airport there will be a little icon on the corner of your iphone with the company that you are near their booth on the airport and the icon pops up even even if you don't have the app they they do a lot more to Promote apps on, on iOS than they do on macOS, so that's why on the Mac the word of mouth stuff is a lot more important.
0: Well, that's true, and to Erica's point, if you're solving a problem people are facing, they'll find your app. You know, they'll, they'll talk to other people that have the same problem, and you can do that. And at that point, no one cares what your icon looks like. You might get a little bit of a of an uplift because if you look professional. But, you know, if you're solving a problem for someone, you know, that's all it takes.
1: Yeah, just look at how many, like, really ugly open source tools people use day to day, even command line stuff that doesn't have an interface at all. Uh, Us programmers love those. And I know lots of tools that people use that are really ugly, but they get the job done and that's, usually what matters when you're talking about work stuff.
0: So what are other things that we're not thinking about if someone's trying to decide if they want to sell something in the Mac store or just build a Mac app to sell? What else are we not covering?
1: Well, we haven't covered anything very technical yet. And I don't know if you want to get into that stuff.
0: Oh, we can always get
2: technical. <laughs> well, I think that integration with Apple's other hardware line has become a really critical component where the Mac app becomes less of the target in itself than something that supports the main business. For example, applications that are health-related, planning-related, those things you expect to see on the watch and on the phone. And the components on the Mac often are for history, logging, things that are maintenance tasks rather than immediate tasks. And I do think that that's a really big part of where we are in the Mac OS development world today, that... The Mac application itself has become far less for many developers, obviously not all developers, but for a large number of developers, it's not so much an afterthought, but sort of a bonus.
3: Here I am just started working on a new Mac app that is not an I, I actually am planning to do an iOS app at some point, but it's definitely going to be a Mac app first. But I, but I actually think you're right, Erica. I think for a lot of developers, it has become the sort of secondary platform.
2: I mean, to speak for myself, most of my Mac apps are completely independent. And my Mac stuff works much better for me than my iOS stuff. But I consider this more of a hobby for me than I do a business. And because of that, every Mac sale is just, you know, a nice little joy.
1: Yeah, I think mainly like content consumption apps are basically not available on the Mac. I would love, for instance, to have a Netflix app for the Mac, a YouTube app for the Mac. I don't really like using the browser for video. I think it doesn't work very well. So like those could be on the Mac. And I really believe Apple should make it easier for simple iOS apps to be ported to the Mac. It's not that hard, but it's hard enough that it's not worth it for most companies or even individuals who have iOS apps to make a macOS counterpart. And I believe there are many iOS apps for the iPad, for instance, or even Apple TV that could be ported for, for Mac with not that much work if Apple made, like, a UI kit for Mac. Uh, I, 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 I didn't thought it was possible before, but uh, since the tvOS introduction, like, it's a totally different UI but the framework is the same. There are little difference here and there, but the underlying framework is exactly the same. So if they offered uh, a, maybe a compatibility layer or something like that, I think it, it it would work for developers and for users as well.
2: Apple TV is such a weird place. I know almost no one who goes there specifically to game, to purchase apps that have nothing to do with content consumption. But having the APIs there mean that you can create content consumption. And that's where I think most people's interests are. They want their Amazon video there. They want to consume things from big content providers but I don't really see the demand there to to make, you know, let's cross the road gaming apps. I mean, a few of them exist, but have they been wild successes?
1: Cross the Road is actually my favorite game on Apple TV. <laughs> it's the only one I, I actually play. But I, I agree, really, Apple TV is a, a content consumption platform. I think that's, the main focus of the platform uh it, it even it, it even has a cool app called tv now <laughs> i left so hard when when tim cook said that on the keynote but yeah it, it it's really a, a content consumption platform and I, I wanted to make something for it like but i, I tried really hard to have ideas, and I couldn't, I couldn't come up with anything for for Apple TV that wasn't a game which wouldn't sell basically, because like Erica said, there is no demand, and I am not a content producer, so nothing there as well.
2: Apple okay. TV has two big areas that they've just completely failed to exploit. One is the party area things going on in the screen during a party and you know they do have slideshows but it really the notion of having people who are not interacting with it directly but that it is sort of supporting a social gathering is one area that just could be improved but the other one the big one is check-ins where you have a big screen, and it, most people, those big screens are fairly close to their kitchens, to their scales, and so forth. There's not a huge lo- amount of interaction with the health, food, and planning that you get with the watch. And I'm really surprised there isn't more health kit or you know, an imaginary food kit or shopping kit that you don't really see that kind of interaction with the other devices.
0: So how do you think like a health or shopping app would interact with an Apple TV?
2: It would have to be fairly passive, but if it picks up on your reminders, on your things to do list, on your goals, if it had some personal coaching features, I think that that would be a really great win for Apple.
1: There's another aspect of Apple TV that I I think is not explored as much, which is it's, I think, we can say the only device that is designed to be used by more than one people, uh, more than one person at the same time. You could have, have like, an entire family around the TV and they can all of them can interact at the same time. So maybe some some sort of shopping app could use that, could leverage that feature, like maybe something for families to shop together. I don't know.
2: If you're going to have multiple people using it, I think they're going to be using the PS4 or the Xbox or, God help them, the Wii U. Apple has consistently talked about Apple TV as their hobby but do you feel that they've delivered on that
1: i'm not really sure i, I think it it lacks it's lacking in um, lots of areas like we talked about but is this is it still their hobby or ha- have they changed that <laughs> uh it, it surely feels like it's a hobby still but uh, is that their message still?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a good, a good start. It's a good device. I enjoy using it. I can watch the stuff I want to watch. Um, as Erica said, it's mainly for me about watching content, you know, watching baseball, hockey, or Game of Thrones, that type of stuff. I ended up looking for games and like ended up not buying any and and not missing it. It, it would be cool to see how a more like interactive party application would work. I think that's somewhere down the road. I think when we get more people using it and we get more people interested in experimenting with what more Apple TV-like devices can become, because I think they will become, you know, somewhat more important than they are now. Right now there's there's so many devices, but I think the experience compared to, you know, your your TV's browsing of Netflix or uh, whatever, the other devices that I've used have been pretty pretty rough to use and Apple's been uh, nice de- de- definitely a step up in that area.
1: Yeah. And, and it has that integration with other Apple stuff that's, they are famous for, and that, that really makes a difference. Like Apple TV for me is uh, my YouTube, Netflix and Crossy road device. I, I only do those three things, mostly YouTube. So, uh, they, but the integration, the, the login with your Apple ID, and you have everything synced, that, that's really cool. And Apple Music as well is really cool.
0: I can imagine, though, if I have to log in with something I have created by one password, that's going to be really tough with the Apple TV. Yeah. I, I think Apple TV-type apps get a lot more interesting when we start integrating the rest of the house. You know, your doors, the lights, that type of thing. And when that becomes more prevalent i think what we can do with apple tv like stuff becomes a lot more interesting
2: yeah and the i biometrics. hope that's their so goal cool. um i really yeah. think biometrics is where apple tv could shine
0: like what you've been on the couch for three hours go for a walk <laughs> not bring, just bring that. your iphone you so you can still watch game of thrones so you know
2: you come home and on your tv you turn on your TV, it's been monitoring your heartbeat and so forth and your walk over lunch and what you ate. And you're using various things on other devices. And you can sit down on your couch and you can see the graphs. You can see what sort of things you've accomplished. You can set goals. And I think the Apple TV is more suitable for that kind of Overview. It's something you want big pictures of.
0: Yeah, I agree. It would be like in a case where the device would always be on, which it's not really now, but it recognizes that you walked into the room. Hey, here's all, here's things that you wanted to do today. Here's what we got done. A status update. So I'm probably not going to my computer to check on that. But if it's right there in front of me, I would go check it out. So I think that's, uh, that could be an important uh, move forward for Apple TV. The important
2: thing about Apple TV is you're not sitting at a desk you are most likely for those people who live with other human beings with other human beings when that tv is on it takes you out of that paradigm of being tied to your desktop just the way that the iphone let you move away and the ipad let you move away and the watch let you move away from sitting at the desktop the Apple TV has that potential to create a new area of computing. And it's been around now for how many years now? Eight years? And it hasn't realized that potential.
0: That's true. There's a there's a long
1: way to go. Yeah, but I mean, it's not really around for that long because it's only been recently that they allowed apps and stuff. Let's see, uh, WWDC is just around the corner. Maybe this year we'll have an update and they'll integrate all the health stuff.
2: Honestly, I want my Apple TV to do yoga with me.
0: That would be cool. That could be happened. It happening. They might announce it at WWDC, I think. Well, this will actually air after WWDC,
1: I believe but
2: oh so it's sort of pointless to try to do predictions because this is going to be after and then everybody will laugh at us
1: it's going to sound so dumb
0: <laughs> we'll see or they might not talk about anything apple tv so
1: yeah i think that's most likely actually so we're running a little bit
0: low on time anything else that we should cover before we get to the picks i think, I think we're good. good all right Gee, what do you have for us
1: well, uh, I, I know WWDC has po- is probably gone, but you can watch the sessions that have passed on my cool WWDC app for macOS, which hopefully will uh, will be updated by now on version 5, which at the time of this recording, I'm really crazy in writing Tens of thousands of lines of code every week to to try and get it ready. But hopefully you can watch the videos and see the transcripts, add bookmarks, collaborate with your friends. That's a new feature that's coming. So I have that pick. And also I've been using an app that I didn't know about before, which is called SIM folders with PH. SIM folders with PH. And it's just a menu bar app that lists your iOS simulator apps and you can open the containers to see the files and debug stuff. So really useful sim folders. Those are my picks.
0: Very cool. Erica, what do you have for us?
2: I have a book. It's by Brandon Sanderson, who is a fairly popular author. And it's called... The Rithmatist, R-I-T-H-M-A-T-I-S-T. And it is basically a magical story about turtle graphics.
0: Very cool. Andrew,
3: what do you have? I am going to pick the Living Computer Museum that Jame and I went to together when we were in Seattle last week. It's a museum owned by Paul Allen, um, co-founder of Microsoft. It's a computer history museum, so a bunch of old computers, although the first floor is sort of modern technology. Um, but the thing that makes it unique uh, compared to something like the Computer History Museum in Silicon Valley is that most of the computers are just set up out where you can use them. And I, I was really kind of surprised because there's stuff there that's not not exactly common or easy to come by, and it's just on a table, and you just can go up and use it. Nobody's there telling you what you can and can't do. You can do anything. So they're... they, they um, They've got a bunch of cool stuff. They actually have three Apple Ones, only one of those is out where you can use it. But uh, so I got to play on an Apple One, um, and an Altair 80, 8800. They've got a bunch of mainframes, and um, I thought it was really well done. Had a fu- fun time spending an afternoon there. So if you're in Seattle, that is definitely worth checking out. That's my pick.
0: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. They had a bunch of old 50s, 60s mainframes, and I got to play with an Apple IIe, which I had as a kid. Played a little Oregon Trail.
2: Did you die of dysentery?
0: I didn't get that far. I just went to the hunting, and it, it was actually a newer version than what I played when I was a kid. It was like the eighty five, eighty six version. The hunting was all different, so I was disappointed, and I rage quit. <laughs> but it was all—it was—it all, was fun. So I think there was a Xerox Park machine. They have newer stuff mm-hmm. too, but the, you know the old stuff was the most fun. So I've—I've I've got one pick. It's a the blog post. So, uh, was it the same night? Yeah, at the, the night after we went to the the museum, we went to check out the Seattle's XCoder's meeting, and one of the speakers talked about the Vapor Swift framework backend stuff, and I was digging into that a little bit, and I ran across a blog post, which is a good overview of the four major Swift backend frameworks for for web work. And I thought it was a good good overview. You know, there's the IBM Katana. I'm not going to embarrass myself by going through the other ones but Vapor is one of the big ones with probably the biggest community. Uh, But it's a good uh, blog post and I'll put a link to it. So that's it for me and that's it for our show. Um, Glad you all could be there with us. Be here with us and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, guys. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.